have been in a series in which we're looking at 16, we're looking at the Bible through 16 passages. We're going through and looking at the whole Bible story, Genesis to Revelation. Um, We're not quite halfway through, but we've talked about the idea that God establishes a kingdom, and he is king. And then we talked about the idea that God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the kingdom to be his representatives. And then we talked about the idea that Adam and Eve chose not to represent God, but instead chose Satan. And then we talked about the idea that God stepped into the picture and said, look, I'm going to make this thing right. And so God set up a plan. We talked about the idea that God brought a man by the name of Abraham, chose Abraham and said, Abraham, um, I know you don't believe this, but here's what I'm going to do through you. And then God, last time we talked, we talked about the idea of God set up Judah and said, Judah, I know he would not be the choice for, for, for us, but he's the one that God chose. And he said, Judah, I'm going to bring the king through your lineage. And we talked about that last, uh, last week, two weeks ago. Um, so when we leave, when last left off in the story, the Bible story, here's what we've got. We've got, the, we've got Joseph, who's in Egypt, as second highest in command. Uh, in order to, because Joseph was a Jew living in the land of the Egyptians, he was allowed to bring his family down. And so his family comes down to live with him. They're given a little section of ground in a land called Goshen. Uh, what happens is the children of Israel uh, now are there. And so you have the children of Israel, um, Abraham and his clan, and Joseph and everybody there in Goshen. You have the Egyptians. And we are now going to fast forward 430 years. So let me tell you what's happened in that 430 years. In that 430 years, we've taken 70, roughly 70 people who have gone from the land of Canaan, the Israelites, down to Egypt. At the end of 430 years, they have developed into approximately, conservative estimates say, 2 million people. Now, we have 2 million Jewish people living in Egypt. Now, this is a problem if you're an Egyptian. Here's why. You feel like you are being invaded by foreigners who don't belong. By this time, they've forgotten Joseph as a ruler. So by now, a pharaoh comes along who has forgotten Joseph and who decides that he doesn't like all of these Jewish people living in this Egyptian land, especially since they've got some of the nicer ground. So he decides to make them slaves. He also decides that in order to get rid of them, he's going to start killing them. And the way to kill them is to kill them when they're young. So he sets up a decree that says every male child under the age of two is to be killed. Um, Or, I'm sorry, um, every male child that's born is to be killed. So as a child is born, if it's a male, they are to drown it, they are to kill it, they are to get rid of it. Abortion, by the way, folks, is not a new concept. It's been around for a long time. But that was the decree of Pharaoh. We know that that in the Jewish midwives decide, wait a minute, we're not going to listen to a pagan pharaoh. We're going to listen to our God. God values life, so therefore we're not going to do this. And they continued to deliver the babies. In fact, the New Testament tells us the name of two of them, uh, Shifra and Pua, uh, were delivering a child and decided not to kill it because they feared God. And God honored that. This child, by the way, turned out to be uh, the son of Jochebed and Amram, who happened to be, you would know him as Moses. They hand him Moses, this baby's not named Moses yet, they hand him this child, he's, this child, she raises him, 
until he gets old enough. As he starts to get a little bit older, he starts to make more and more noise. And can you imagine trying? Can you imagine living in a world where your child cannot make any noise or attract any attention? And that's the world that they're living in. By the way, it was a boy child. So it gets to a point that he's just making too much noise. So she trusts God. She makes a little basket, puts him in a basket, pushes him out into the water, and says, God, you're going to have to take care of him now. You know the story. Pharaoh's daughter's out bathing, looks, sees a little basket, says, hey, bring that over to me, open it up, boop, there's a boy. She goes, hey, I think I want this one. So she takes the boy, miraculously, amazingly enough, um, and uh, Jacobet's daughter is there, who says, hey, hey, I know somebody who can help you take care of him. Ah, Moses' mom comes along. She calls him, by the way, Pharaoh's daughter calls him Moses, which means drawn out of the water. Takes that little child, raises him. What that means is that Moses, for the first 40 years of his life, was brought up in an Egyptian world. That means that he had the best of the best. That means that he had the, he lived in a palace. He got whatever he wanted. I mean, this was, and he was trained by the finest people. He was given all kinds of things as he was brought up. But in that short amount of time that his mom had him, she taught him about the, the Hebrews. Moses is 40 years old. He's out walking one day. You know the story. He sees a Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. He goes over, and again, he would have been trained in combat. So Moses goes over and takes the life of the Egyptian. Looks around, doesn't see anybody, buries him, digs a hole in the sand, which I think would have been amazing. Digs a hole, buries him in the sand, covers him up, walks away. A couple days later, somebody says, hey, we saw you kill that Egyptian. Well, Moses knew then his days were numbered. You You can't kill an Egyptian, even though you were raised in Pharaoh's court. So Moses leaves the area for 40 years. Moses goes out into the wilderness and basically takes care of sheep, animals. Moses is in the wilderness. One day, you know the story. God appears in a burning bush, says, Moses, i got a job for you now. At this point, Moses is 80 years old. You know the thing. Moses goes back, let my people go. And you know the whole thing. Series of plagues come. Here's, here's the thing you need to understand about the plagues. In the story of the plagues, what God is doing is very simply saying this. In that, in that world, they worship many gods. And there was a God for everything. And God systematically in the ten plagues attacks the gods of the Egyptians. And so God goes through and he attacks all of the belief system because God is ultimately saying to the Egyptian people, I am the God of gods. Your gods mean nothing. And I'm going to show you, I am more powerful than any of your gods. So there's a whole series of plagues. And as a plague would come, they would pray to their gods and it would do nothing. So God was saying, look, I'm God. And uh, I'm the God of gods. So that comes all the way through, you know the story, you go through the plagues, and you come to the tenth plague. The tenth plague is actually an attack, believe on a god by the name of Min. Um, and, and that god believed, he was, he was a god of reproduction, and he was, uh, which ultimately believed this. In the life of the Egyptian, Pharaoh's firstborn son would be considered a god, because Pharaoh was considered a god. So the idea is that in that world, Pharaoh's firstborn son would be the next god of the Egyptians. And then the final tenth plague, God comes in and God sets it up to say, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go through, I'm going to destroy the firstborn of all the land. Um, A little bit later, what's going to happen, you know, the children of Israel are going to go out 
Um, they're going to come to Mount Sinai. God's going to set up a nation for the first time. And one of the things he's going to do when he sets up that nation is he's going to make it based on a sacrificial system that actually originates back in the 10th plague. And that's where we're going to put our focus this morning. So let me read the passage. Then we're going to talk about it. We're going we're to apply it then as we go. So Exodus chapter 11 and 12 um, is where our story is found. Um, and here's what it says. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. The firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout all of Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. That right there is amazing. Hey, I can't get my dogs not to bark. Um, you know, my Trixie, she's like 14 years old. I drive in the driveway and she barks. I'm like, really? You got up to do that? Um, but she does. Anyway, uh, not a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come down to me, bowing before me, and say, Go, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So Moses comes into Pharaoh, and he says, Look, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. We keep playing this thing. You won't let us go, so this is what God's going to do. And it's ultimately what God does. Come to Exodus chapter 12. These are the commands to the children of Israel. Here's what it says. The Lord said, Moses, Aaron, and Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If the household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that are there. Um, again, you see community even in the early Israelite people. You see the importance of doing life together. He said, look, if you don't have enough, you know, you've got a small family, then get somebody else to come in with you. Notice what he said. You are determined lamb... Um, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them um, from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Going on. Next one, yeah. That same night, they are to eat the meat, roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Don't eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Don't leave any of it until morning. If some's left in the morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It's interesting. It's one of the few things in the Bible God says to do quickly. Um... Eat it in haste. On that night, same night, I will pass through Egypt. I will strike every firstborn of the people and the animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are, and I will see the blood. I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is what we know as a Passover. You need to understand, this is a turning point in the Bible. This is a point in the Bible in which God introduces the idea of sacrifice and substitute and redemption. In this thing, God sets something up for the children of Israel. And here's what he says is going to happen. There's a group of people who he says, if you're my believers, if you're a genuine follower of me, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take a male lamb, a year old. You're going to take that lamb, and on the 
10th day of the first month, which happened to be nice on 10, would correspond about to our April 10th. April 10th, you're going to take that lamb, you're going to come home with it, and I want, you to, I want us to put ourselves in that picture for a minute. You've got a family, you've got little kids, you're going to come home, you're going to take a lamb, you're going to tie it up outside because you're going to watch it and make sure it's okay. Now, have any of you brought home an animal with little kids? How'd that go? You know, I used to work nursing home. One of the things that I did was I would have to quarantine the animals before they went to the nursing home. So, uh, and never forget, we had a pygmy goat that lived with us for a month. <sighs> My kids are little, and it's like, oh, the pygmy goat. You know, it's like I couldn't get rid of that thing fast enough. Um, but, you know, I mean, and I'm sure. They come home with the animal, a little kid starts getting attached to it, going out every day, petting it. It's all tied up. They're checking it out. Four days later, come to the evening. Dad now pulls that little goat aside and explains to the kids, all right, kids, this is what's going to happen. God has said that tonight the angel's going to come through the land and he's going to kill the firstborn in every household. Firstborn animal, firstborn male in every household, gone. So just out of curiosity, I want you to see the impact of something like this. How many of you in here are the firstborn male in your family? Okay. All right, all of you would be gone. All of you. Huh? Yeah, exactly. What's that? <laughs> okay, so in your situation, boom, boom. Now you're, now you're a widow. In one evening, you know, in one evening, you're a widow. In one night, firstborn, firstborn of all your animals, firstborn male of all your animals, gone. God said, this is what I'm going to do. But, if you believe me, I'm going to give you a way out. If you believe me, this is what you need to do. I need you to take that animal, set it aside on the 10th day, on the 14th day. I need you to take that animal, and I need you to slit its throat, and I need you to catch its blood. You see, it was a reminder that something's going to die tonight. God's judging. And either you're going to die tonight, or that animal's going to die in your place tonight. But something's dying. Something is, going to, something is going to lose its life tonight. So God explains to the kids, and he catches the blood. So, think about it for a minute. Now, I've got to fast forward this, because I don't want you to say, I came to church and watched a guy paint. Um, so, guess what? Just like one of those cooking shows, where it's already like half done. Right? So, think about it for a minute. Now, by the way, they wouldn't have had doors like this. Most, most likely, it would have been just timber frames, and then there would probably been a cloth or something like that in front of it. Okay? Um, but they would have had doorposts. They would have been fairly substantial. I can't believe I'm doing this. But you're going to take the blood, and you're going to start painting it. Oh, no, I've got to mix it up. You're going to start painting it on the doorposts. If you've ever seen me paint, this is why I do this on a Sunday. My wife is not here. Um, and he says, you're going to paint it on so that that night, oh, i got to mix this way up. Oh, now I'm in trouble. You're going to paint it on so that at night, when the angel comes through, the angel is going to look and see, ouch, 
see, look at that mess, sorry. And see the blood on the door, and the angel is going to do what? Pass on by. That's really important. We're going to talk about this in a second. Then he says, I want everybody inside to do this. I want everybody to get dressed. I want everybody to get their bags packed. I want you to have your staff in your hand. I want you to have your shoes on your feet. I want you to have your belt on. I want you to roast the entire animal. Eat whatever you want of it, because you're about ready to go on a journey. When you're done, if there's anything left over, burn it. The entire sacrifice must be consumed. Nothing to be left. Now, I want you to try to think about explaining this to your kids. This has never been done before. And explaining this to your family. So you go about getting everybody ready, eating the meal, explaining to the kids what's going to happen, and then you start to hear a wailing. And you start to hear noises unlike anything you have ever, ever heard. The Bible says that there was not a house that somebody did not die that night. Except the ones with the blood applied. And on that evening, as the angel came through, some people were ready and some people weren't. It's very interesting. When you study the plagues of the children, when you study the plagues of Egypt, here's what you find. The first four happened in, to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. As the plagues got more severe, the, 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 the Goshen was protected, where the children of Israel was. The last plague affects the people in Goshen who didn't believe and the Egyptians. At this point in the story, when you look at the Egyptian story, in the story of the plagues, at this point in the story, Pharaoh was so angry with the Jewish people that he basically had turned everyone against the Jewish people. That night, as the angel goes through and starts slaying the firstborn in every house, and that morning when the children of Israel leave, the people are so anxious to get rid of them, they give them anything they want. You walk by and go, hey, I need 20 bucks. Here, here's 50. You wonder why the children of Israel came up with all the jewelry and gold and everything else for the golden calf? They got whatever they wanted when they walked out of Egypt. They just wanted them out of there. And so that's the story of the Passover. That's the story of, of what happens. Um, and you have introduced to you for the very first time in the Bible this idea of Something can take your place. But God was very specific in what he did. It had to be a blood sacrifice. It had to be something that was without blemish. Because you see, thousands of years, a couple thousand years later or so, Jesus is going to come onto the scene. And he's going to become the ultimate Passover sacrifice. That's why, by the way, it's so significant that it happens the crucifixion happens near Passover. Because God wants you to understand this concept. So a couple of things, a couple of takeaways and, and things for us to wrestle with a little bit as the Bible really takes a pivot here. In Exodus, the Bible makes this thing very, very clear. Your sin can be paid for by someone else. You can escape judgment because of the sacrifice of someone else. 
In this case, it was a lamb. In our situation, the Bible is very clear. It is appointed a man wants to die after this judgment. You're either going to stand before God in your sin and face the judgment like the Egyptians did that night, or you're going to stand there covered in the blood of Christ, who is your sacrifice, and be passed over. It's your call. It's your choice. It's not about going to church. It's not about giving money. It's not about baptism. It's not about um, uh, all of the things that we tend to tie up into religion. Here's what it's about. It's about do you have a faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone? Do you? Because you see, the only accepting thing for us is the blood of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's why we celebrate communion each week. It's a reminder of his blood which was shed for us and his body which was broken for us. It's a reminder that that's what he did for us. And on this night, lots of people died that didn't have to. But people who believed did this simple thing. Taking the lamb, setting it aside for four days, slaying his throat, and being obedient. And I want to challenge you this morning to understand that, you know what? You have to deal with your sin. You can either let Jesus deal with it at the cross and take his blood, which was shed on your behalf, and apply that to your life. Or you can say, I don't believe in any of that. Just like on that night, there were Jewish people who said, I don't believe it. There would have been Jewish people that night that said, you know what, I just think that's a little far-fetched. You know what, that just seems silly to me. I don't think God would really do something like that. I mean, God's a God of love. I don't think it's that big a deal. And the firstborn in that home died that night. But the ones who said, kids, family, this is what we're going to do. And the reason we're going to do it is because this is what God said. That night, everyone in that house lived. And when that door was open the next day, they all walked out. And I want to challenge you because it's a very, very serious thing. And we're in a world in which people say it doesn't matter what you believe. It does. We're in a world which says you can believe whatever you want. It makes no difference. No, 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 no. Jesus said it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one gets to the Father but through me. There is no other way. Jesus was very explicit about that. And I want to challenge this morning. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're trusting in something else to get you into heaven. It's not going to be enough. Because this is the only way. For me, as 16 years old, I simply bowed my head and said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. And as best as I know how, forgive me my sin, come into my life, be my Savior. From that moment on, I'm trusting Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And that becomes so important that you understand that. Because this is a turning point in the Bible. That with a blood sacrifice, I can be redeemed. I can have, not have to face my judgment because of another sacrifice. A second principle is this. I want to talk to Christians for a moment. Let me ask you something. 
If you were a genuine Jewish believer that night, and you have taken that animal and sacrificed that animal and whatever else, how thorough a job would you do putting blood on the door? How covered are you going to make those doorposts? Are you going to go in that night and go, you know what, it's such a beautiful wood. Let's just do a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. Because I don't want to mess up my door. I got news for you. But, but here's what you need to understand. I've covered this baby. If it was a wood door, I'm doing it till the blood runs out. Now, you need to remember this. In this culture, it, they didn't have nice finishes. It was just rough sawn timber. When you put blood on it, it wasn't coming off. It was going into the pores of the wood. You were making a statement, and you were making a very public statement, and you were making a public statement that would have cost you your life if the death angel didn't come through that night. You need to understand that. You need to understand that this was not just a simple fly-by-night decision for, for these people. When these people walked out and they started painting their doorposts red, here's what they were saying to every Egyptian in that land. I reject your gods, and I'm following that one. And if that thing didn't happen that night, they weren't going to be out there in the morning rubbing off the blood. They had made a stand, and there was no turning back. It was an all-in kind of stand. And when they went in and they painted those doorposts, it wasn't coming off, and everybody knew from that point on, I believe in the God of gods, the Hebrew God. That's the God I'm following. Why do we, when it comes to letting the world know we're a Christian, go, you know, I, I am, but I just kind of don't want it to be that noticeable. You know, I just don't want anybody to, like, single me out. You know, I, I don't want anybody to go, oh, man, they're like all in. Why have we allowed the world to make us ashamed that the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to our lives and that we're all in? Why have we gotten to a point that we let them intimidate us? Because you see, when a, when a Jew in that day painted blood on their doorpost, they were making a statement for all the world to know. And they were all in at that point. And they didn't care what anybody thought. They didn't care what their, their, their Egyptian neighbor down the road thought. They didn't care what, they, they didn't care what their non-believing Jewish believer or unbeliever next to them thought. They were out there painting their doorposts because they believed that God was going to do what he said that night.
Would to God that we would have that kind of faith again. Would to God that we would stop being ashamed to paint our lives in such a way that the world knows I really don't care what you think. This is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I'm about. Because that night, those people took a stand. And the ones who did, lived. And the ones who didn't, lost the firstborn in every single house. Why? Because that night, God was a God of judgment. When we die, we face one of two aspects of God. A God of love, who purchased, who redeemed us, who was our sacrifice. We face a God of judgment because we rejected his gift. There are only two options. There are only two options. And God showed that night a very important Bible principle. I will save. I will rescue. I will redeem. But something has to die. Something has to be judged. Either that animal or you. And when we stand before God, either God's going to judge our sin at the cross because we've accepted him, or as we stand before him because we've rejected him. And for those of you who are believers, please, let them know what you believe. And stop being ashamed of it. So my prayer this week goes something like this. God provided the ultimate substitute for our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. He provided a way for God to redeem us. And we need to boldly proclaim that to a world who doesn't get it. Let's pray. Lord, use us. For those of us that have put our faith and trust in you, Lord, would you help to give us a boldness where we're not ashamed when we have the opportunity? We're not ashamed to tell somebody, this is what I believe. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what God has done in my life. And Lord, for those this morning who may be trusting in something else, Lord, would you help them to understand that there is nothing they can do to earn eternal life, but that it is a gift offered by you to anyone who will simply believe and accept it. Lord, for each of us, work in our lives this week, use us, and may we proclaim to a world a risen, loving Savior who paid the ultimate price so that our sins could be forgiven and we could live differently. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing day by day. Let's sing the first verse day by day.